Today's sermon is from Luke 17, verse 20 to 37. I'll be reading from the NIV translation. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of the, the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So it certainly is quite natural and normal for nations to celebrate what they would call their birthday. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago here in Canada, we celebrate Canada Day on the 1st of July, and it's that acknowledgement of the forming of the Canadian Union. And so we celebrate, yay, and in a sense, it's the, the birth of a nation. Uh, south of the border, the United States, they do the same thing. Uh, and on the 4th of July, they celebrate Independence Day and, and all the fireworks and kind of that big celebration of we've become our own nation. We're, we're independent. It's the birthing of this nation. I'm from South Africa, uh, and we did the same thing for many, many years. The, the 6th of April was known as Founders Day or Van Riebeck's Day. Uh, which was named after Jan van Riebeck, who discovered South Africa and boom, there we go, we founded this country. And of course, I 
kind of use the air quotes deliberately when I talk about the founding or the birth of a nation, because anybody who knows history would tell you that pretty much at the birth of a nation, there were already people living there. Uh, that place was occupied. Uh, it had a different name. It, the locals referred to it as something else. Uh, even here in Canada, we, we speak of First Nations. We speak of those people who were here when the country was found or when the country was formed. Uh, and so people were there. And, and it's this debatable point about nations uh, because the reality is, as we look over the history of humanity, nations rise and nations fall. Uh, nations come and nations go. Uh, we might kind of bulk at that nowadays and we might sort of say, well, that's not going to happen now. Uh, that's not going to happen again in the future. But the reality is we don't know what the future holds. And so I would say looking back over history, because kingdoms have come or nations have come and then gone again, it's only logical, it's only natural that kingdoms and nations will come and they will go. Uh, two weeks ago, I spoke about ethics in the kingdom of God. And really what we were talking about in that portion of scripture that we looked at from Luke chapter 16 was where Jesus invites his followers. He, he expects his disciples to live in a particular way, uh, to practice kingdom ethics. If we are in the kingdom of God, uh, if we serve under Christ, then there's an expectation that we will live in a certain way. Uh, we will be subject to the king of this kingdom. And of course, as we read through the Gospels, this whole theme of kingdom uh, is actually features quite prominently. Jesus begins his ministry in recorded in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Uh, Jesus says, the time has come. For the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And Matthew echoes that in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 and sort of says at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when we kind of keep in mind that idea of kingdom, when we look at Jesus' parables, he often told parables on the kingdom of God, what the kingdom was like or how it would come or what life in it is supposed to be like. Evidently, the kingdom of God and the kingdom is a big deal. But what exactly is a kingdom and what is the kingdom or the kingdom of God? Now, we know that historically a kingdom is an area that was ruled by a king. Those who live in that area are subjects of the king and therefore they are subject to the king. Uh, they respond to the king's wishes and bidding. They, they fulfill what his requirements are. They serve their king. They pay their taxes to their king. They fight for their king. 
And so in today's passage that we've just read in Luke chapter 17, Jesus now builds on this idea of the kingdom and he starts to speak about the coming kingdom uh, and more specifically the day of the Lord, which would be that day that inaugurates the final kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. But again, as we've seen, as we've read through Luke and as we've journeyed through this gospel, uh, we need to understand it. We need to look at it and we need to hear it from the perspective of Israel in Jesus's day. How would the Jewish audience that Jesus is speaking to, how would they receive it? Now, the nation of Israel had a long history. Certainly much longer than the history of Canada or the United States or South Africa or any other nation. It has this long history and, and the Israelite land or the issue of land for the Israelites was an important issue. You see, for, for many of the Israelites, the size of their kingdom or the size of their land spoke volumes about the blessing of God. And of course, the centuries prior to Jesus coming had not been kind to the nation of Israel. The last 700 years of Israel's history had seen the Assyrians uh, defeat Israel. Uh, Then came the Babylonians and they defeated. Then came the Persians and then came the Greeks. And now in Jesus's time, they're under Roman rule. Uh, These foreign nations are ruling and subjugating the nation of Israel in their promised land. And these nations come with their rules, their cultural practices and their enforced changes, which they, of course, enforce on the nation of Israel. Injustice and certainly compromise uh, were commonplace even within the nation of Israel. As the nation of Israel had to respond to these heathen or pagan nations and rulers around them uh, and how they had to do business in that sense and in that context, often the foreign culture of these nations was forced onto the Jews. And of course, on some occasions, uh, the law of God had to be put aside uh, simply because it became it came into conflict with the law of the nation that was in control regularly the religious freedom of the Jews was compromised. Uh, There were times when their temple was defiled and sacrifices couldn't be made in their history. (laughs) Of course, we know there were even times when there was no temple at all because foreign nations had destroyed this temple and destroyed that symbolic presence of God over the nation of Israel. And so through all of the nation of Israel's history, Uh, In those times and when they're under foreign rule, the Jews kept longing for a day when God would restore the land to them and God would reestablish their kingdom. Good Jews prayed a prayer something like this every single day. They would say something like, oh, Lord, raise up the son of David that he may reign over Israel and purge Jerusalem from the nations that trample her down to destruction. With a rod of iron, he shall break in pieces all their substance and he shall gather a holy people and neither sojourner nor alien shall live with them anymore and he shall have the heathen nations to serve him under his yoke and he shall purge Jerusalem making it holy as of old 
And so in the mind of the Jewish people, in the mind of the nation of Israel, this was known as the day of the Lord. This was known as the coming kingdom of God. Uh, it was such a topic that consumed the nation of Israel's thoughts and minds. Many Israelites contemplated it daily. And especially and certainly the Pharisees thought about it and discussed it and, and longed for it. it. It was such an important topic that we see in this passage of scripture that even though the Pharisees hate Jesus and they're trying to destroy Jesus, they're still curious to know, Jesus, what is your perspective of the coming day of the Lord? What is your perspective of the kingdom of God? And so they ask Jesus for his opinion. And this is what he answers them in the passage we've just read in Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. And it's a fascinating conversation because it's very clear from Jesus's answer that the kingdom of God has multiple aspects to it. In some ways, the, the coming kingdom of God is a bit like a Christmas parade. Think about a, a secular Christmas parade. Uh, you know, you've seen them, you've seen them on TV, you've maybe even been to them. And, and they kind of, these parades always start off and there's a big band that initiates the parade and they start walking ahead and they might sing a song like, we wish you a Merry Christmas or something like that. And then behind them comes a series of these moving gifts or, or these big life-size toys in their floats and displays and everyone's waving as they go past. And further along, there might be kind of, I don't know, big things of, of ice or the North Pole and Santa's village and elves working along and, and kind of as the parade progresses, right at the end of the parade, finally comes the big man himself. Uh, here comes Santa sitting on his sleigh being pulled by reindeer or, or at the very least horses with fake antlers and one of them has a bright red light bulb uh, somewhere. But each moment in that parade is important Yet every moment points to the coming of Santa. Uh, many of us at White Rock Baptist Church have been involved with the Christmas on the Peninsula. Uh, and at the Christmas on the Peninsula parade, this has a Christmas Christian parade. And what I mean by a Christmas Christian parade is the parade signifies the nativity story. And we have all the elements of the nativity of the birth of Christ. And we see each character coming along, but each character, as important as they are, point back. And they point to the coming of Jesus Christ at the end. And God's kingdom is like that. There are these scenes that come along, but each one points to the coming and to something else. Even in the Old Testament, it was spoken about of these foreign nations and how these nations would come and go, but there would come one that would remain forever. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and Daniel interprets the dream for him. And, and Daniel shows that it's about the Babylonian Empire and the Babylonian Empire would fall to the Persian Empire. And then the Persian Empire would fall to the Greek Empire and the Greek Empire would fall to the Roman Empire. And all these empires would come and would go. But eventually there will be another kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, Daniel says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. 
It will crush all other kingdoms and bring an end to them, but it will itself endure forever. And so for the nation of Israel, there's the sense that finally God's people will win. Finally, we'll have a kingdom. Finally, there will be an outward, earthly, visible kingdom of our own. It'll be a kingdom where the Jews had a prominent place. It would be a kingdom where judgment would be brought against the pagan and heathen nations. It would be a kingdom where the stranglehold of the foreign empires would be removed and obliterated. And it would be a kingdom where Jerusalem would contain God's throne. Finally, finally, we win. Or at least that's how the Pharisees and the Jews thought about the kingdom of God. But then Jesus comes along and Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And he says, when you pray, say this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And of course, when we're praying this, are we saying, God, we want your kingdom to win? Yeah, it would be nice if you would win. It would be nice if we could be finally on the winning team. I mean, throughout history, that's how nations have viewed their kingdom. If the kingdom is growing, well, then we're winning. Uh, we're, we're pushing enemies back and we're taking land. And so as the kingdom grows, we're winning. But throughout history, as the kingdom has shrunk, as kingdoms lose parts of land to foreign nations, well, now we're losing because we are shrinking. And I think sometimes even we as Christians in the church, we view the kingdom of God in a similar way. And we might think that when we see a revival or the growth of an underground church in foreign nations, and we see the growth of Christianity, we might think in terms of we're winning, we're, we're gaining ground. Yes, we're winning. Or we might look home to our own nation or to North America and we see the steady decline of the church and the loss or the lack of influence of Christians and Christianity in culture. And we think in terms of we're losing. The kingdom is losing ground. And so when we think about your kingdom come and the application of your kingdom come, often that's how we think. We think in terms of winning or losing. We think God's kingdom comes when there's a growth in Christianity or when Christians successfully have the lands, the laws of the land changed to reflect the laws of God. Or we think we're winning when the rights of Christians are enforced even against the desires of non-Christians in our culture. In other words, God's kingdom comes when we win. And when we're not winning, God's kingdom is going or it's taking a beating. That's certainly how the Pharisees saw it. But is that how it works? You've probably heard the expression, so near and yet so far. And it's that idea that we can be so close to something that we're almost there. And for whatever reason, we either give up or, or we turn or we, we choose a different tack. We were so close. But because we changed and we turned, we are so far. We can be so close, but yet so far away when it comes to the total picture. You see, if we think only of the kingdom in terms of visible, outward and victorious events, we will also only be so close, yet so far. You see, that's part of the story for sure. 
But that's not the whole story. Uh, let me reread just a couple of verses. In Luke 17, verse 20 and 21, Jesus replies, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Can you see, can you hear what Jesus is saying? And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is not primarily based on what's visible or, or what's touchable or what's measurable. It's not based on this outward thing that we can point to. No, God's kingdom is so much more. And one of the elements of God's kingdom is what's going on inside of me and what's going on inside of you. What is happening in our hearts? Now, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus is saying, and the Apostle Paul is echoing it, the kingdom of God is within you, and the struggle in the kingdom is not a struggle against flesh and blood. The struggle is not about a visible, tangible kingdom uh, area around us. No, the struggle is a spiritual struggle against the spiritual forces of darkness. It is those forces that seek to destroy us and seek to destroy the kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you. So make sure you draw up the battle lines in the right place. You see, sometimes in church, when we think of battle lines, uh, differences come up. The differences come up between members of the same church. And, and we start to feel that maybe the kingdom is at stake and we need to go against the other person and, and make sure they're corrected. And we need to tell them what we think. Sometimes we're not as godly as we should be, or our attitudes are not the attitudes of Christ. Now, we might win an argument, but at what cost? When the, when the kingdom of God is about so much more. And sometimes we put other Christian groups down. We make judgments about other Christian groups. You know, we might point across the street and say, you know, those Presbyterians are nothing more than dot, dot, dot. Or we look further down and we say, you know, that Alliance Church, I'm a little bit worried about what they're teaching over there. Or we point to the Catholics and, and we say, you know, those Catholics, they, they've got this and that. Or we might point at the Baptists. And don't we love doing that? No, 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 we're not those Baptists. We're those Baptists. Uh, those Baptists are, are a little wrong. And, and those Baptists, they're going off on some way out tangent. No, no, these Baptists are the Baptists you should be a part of. Of course, we could come up with more and more examples where it becomes easier and easier to put people in the crosshairs of the battle when that's not the focus of the kingdom. Or we might focus on the people in society, those who make life difficult for others, those who stand up for immoral choices, those who are power hungry, and we make the battle there. And we might feel justified in doing that because then it feels like we're doing something for the kingdom and we're helping the kingdom win because the kingdom is expanding. And if we can win against them, well, then we've won. But in reality, we're not because the kingdom is not primarily about who wins and who loses and what ground is made and what ground is lost. 
Jesus makes it clear in this parable, the kingdom is very much about what's happening in your heart and in my heart. It, it's what's taking place within me. Am I allowing God to rule and reign in my heart? If I'm going to pray, God, let your kingdom come. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is about what is happening within you. Am I willing to pray, God, have rule over my life? God, come and reign in my life. God, help me to be subject to you. Are you allowing God to reign? Are you allowing God to rule you? Now, this is very much a prayer against our own hypocrisy. You see, because we typically judge ourselves against other people or we judge ourselves against other Christians. And we can always find reason to feel better than them because we're doing something that we think is better. We feel like we're making a bigger contribution for God. But are we? Or we judge ourselves against people outside of Christianity, outside of the church. How we see their life and events taking place and we piously think, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. But aren't we just as tempted? Don't we fall to the same sins? Don't we give in to lust or jealousy or anger or whatever other sinful emotion takes over? You see, the kingdom is not about seeing Christians in places of influence, nor is the kingdom about the church taking charge. The kingdom isn't even about religious freedom. It's not about seeing God have some place in society or the law of God have a place in society. The kingdom is about us having the cross of Jesus Christ transforming our lives. And as Jesus transforms our lives, as the kingdom comes, as the kingdom manifests, then yes, undoubtedly, it will have an outward influence. And even though I say it's not about having Christians in places of influence, yes, we need Christians there. But that's not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ are transformed. And as Christians allow the kingdom to take hold and to transform their hearts. It's not about did we win or did the church win? In fact, when Jesus returns, and this is what this story tells, this is Jesus' answer, sorry, tells, Jesus will come back. And his question to us is not going to be, did you win? His question is not going to be, did the church win? Jesus' big question for each one of us will be, did you trust me as Savior? Did you accept me as Lord? Did you live in such a way that I was indeed Lord? You see, Jesus came and Jesus came to establish a kingdom which was like no other. A kingdom where Christ rules, but not by force. Instead, he rules by grace, with mercy, forgiveness, justice and love. The kingdom where Jesus is not merely enthroned in the heavens or in a physical place. No, it's a kingdom where Jesus is enthroned in our hearts. A kingdom where the law of God is now a delight, not a burden. A kingdom where the king has an eternal covenant with his subjects. 
And where he is their dearest and intimate and most reliable friend. In other words, when we pray, your kingdom come. We are asking the Lord to use us as individuals to show the world this is what the kingdom should be like. This is what being a member of God's family is all about. When we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, we're praying, God, would you rule us and reign in us by your spirit? Yes, indeed, we've been reborn. We have a new life in Christ given to us freely by grace. A life given to us, forged in the kingdom of God. And as such, our response is to submit to God. To submit to God as Lord. Not because we're under law, but because we're under grace. And so, yeah, we want to hear God's will for our lives and we want to be obedient to it, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And as we do that, we pray, God, let your kingdom come in us. And so we come with the gospel of Jesus and we use the gospel of Jesus to push back the kingdom of hell. Because the kingdom of hell cannot, the spiritual forces in darkness cannot and will not prevail against the kingdom of God. And we make people to see that there's a spiritual battle raging around them far more than any little earthly conflicts. And we make them and we pray God open their eyes that they would see. And we show them this is how the kingdom comes. It comes in us and through us. And so we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. You know, as we read this story, as Jesus explains and gives this answer and gives these little illustrations, there are so many things I, I haven't touched on this today and, and so many more that I could touch on. But by way of conclusion, as we finish off in this passage, one of the themes that continually comes out is this idea, and we've mentioned it before, it's this idea of now but not yet, or here in part but still to come. And as we read the Gospels, we understand that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God. Jesus made it clear the kingdom is here. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is here. And so we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. We're praying, God, let that kingdom manifest in our hearts and through us into our lives. But Jesus' answer makes it very clear that one day in the future will be the definitive day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. And Jesus gives these little illustrations to remind us that we don't know when that day will come, except that we know that day will come. And we're invited to be ready for that day. We're invited to prepare for that day. To pray and worship and work and reflect while we wait for that great day of the Lord to come. And it will come like a surprise. And just as that old hymn and that song for many years used to say, indeed, we will wish that we had all been ready. As Jesus answers the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom and the coming day of the Lord, Jesus makes it clear, yes, that day will come. But until that day comes, 
you and I are to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come in me and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God through Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit begins in you and spreads from there. Let us continue to pray. God, may your kingdom come. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, as we listen to your words and your discussion and conversation and interaction with those people who longed for that day of the Lord, for an audience and a crowd who would pray daily, God, come and establish your kingdom. God, we're blown away. Jesus, we marvel at the fact that your coming some 2,000 years ago was the beginning of your kingdom. And you invite us as your children and as your disciples to acknowledge that the kingdom of God is within our hearts and within us. It's that place where you, God, rule and reign. And as you work in us and as you transform us and conform us to the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, so it moves out into the world around us. Oh God, change our view. Let us not see the kingdom in terms of winning or losing or gaining ground or losing ground. But God, let us see the kingdom as that place in our hearts where we give you authority and control and we serve you. And as we do that, indeed, God, may we see your kingdom come and manifest in us and through us and around us. Jesus, we know there is coming a day in the future where you will consummate your final kingdom. And we don't know when that day will be. But God, help us to be ready. Ready to be welcomed into the kingdom you've prepared for us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and we say, Amen. Amen.